Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Advent IM podcast, Risk and Business. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Paul Orton. Paul, if you could perhaps introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure thing. Thanks, Mike. So I'm Paul Orton. I am a former Advent IM employee, one of Mike's um, uh, protégés, I'd like to think. Um, I'm currently working um, as the head of security for Lockheed Martin's UK operations uh, based in Bedfordshire. We rescued him from the Royal Air Force. You did, Mike. Yes, thank you very much. Mike, Mike gave me my start in, uh, in, in, I guess, industry security, private security outside of the military. I guess this is in some way uh, a little, a little bit of payback. Right, basically, Advent IM is like a gateway drug for the Royal Air Force. You know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, That's we, a great we way take them from one uniform, put them in a suit, and then uh, <laughs> unleash them upon industry. Upon the world, no, no. So I, I, I have been very fortunate to know Mike and, and Ellie for many, many years and uh, and, and gained a tremendous amount of insight and, and experience and knowledge from the pair of them. So hopefully today will be some spirited debate on uh, on things that we both hold very dear to our hearts, I think. And, and hopefully I can bring a perspective on on, on how we do things in, in, in Lockheed Martin and, and hopefully a little bit of a perspective on on, on security within defence, particularly, which is what what I probably know best of all. How's the how's the um, if you like the new world order that we're seeing as we emerge from the pandemic and all the lockdowns and all the changes to working? How's that affecting you within Lockheed? How's it affecting the wider sort of MOD environment? I think it, it's brought some really interesting and unique challenges, Mike. I mean, we we are an industry that that deals with with largely classified, highly sensitive, in some cases, export controlled information, which is heavily compartmentalized, heavily protected, and and that doesn't necessarily fit particularly well with with working remotely, working from your spare bedroom or or at your kitchen table. So, I think it it kind of I, I like to look at this as sort of a, I guess, a bit of a, a wartime situation, and and things things adapt and change most quickly during times of conflict. And and I remember back in March 2020 when the decision was really made across the UK, and certainly the decision was made within our business to to send everyone home. It was too dangerous. The the risk was too great to have everyone here on site. The risk of transmission. And, and to keep everyone safe, which was ultimately our priority, was was taken by our senior leadership to send everyone home. And and we didn't have we didn't have laptops, we didn't have processes or procedures to to work securely or safely from home. Because you weren't geared up to be a remote working organisation we because of the classified, classified nature. That's it. Mm. And everyone here worked on site every day, and and that was just the way it was. You know, there was there was almost a stigma, I think, attached to people who in inverted commas, work from home. And, and you know, it, it was, and I, and I say in that in that tone of voice, because I think that's how it was looked at. I think it's how it was regarded as an organization and as, as an industry in general. And I don't think it was unique to defense. And then all of a sudden we were thrust into a situation where we had to make this work. And, you know, the, the challenges that that brought from a security perspective, well, how do we know that those people sat at home are not going to let their... 
their family members or, or their foreign national friends come and have a look at the classified material that they're working on or let them overhear a conversation. How do we how do we carry out a security clearance for someone who we've never met? And and it brought lots of challenges. And and I'm and I'm really proud to say that that we really leaned into that as a business. And 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 I think I was very proud of my team for being innovative in in how we approach that situation. We could have 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 gone down the line of, of so many of my security predecessors and folded our arms and said, no, we can't do it. We can't. We how can we possibly do do classified work from from home? And and we could have closed the business down quite happily if we'd have been that overly draconian, rule driven, risk averse security team. We we could have stopped recruitment for the business. We could have pretty much ground the business to a halt. But that clearly wasn't wasn't the way that that we operate. And we looked at the risk. We looked at ways that we could manage that risk. We looked at ways in which we could. Uh, get someone a security clearance and we could carry out a security induction and we could do security briefings and we could give them access to to certain levels of classified information by working remotely through the use of virtual private networks through the use of various methods of authentication and and new and innovative tools to enable all those things to happen you know we're, we're sort of two and a half nearly three years into this now and i'd say 30% 30% of our workforce are on site 100% of the time. The rest of them work in a very much a hybrid fashion. And, and we've enabled that. We've supported that. And, and and it's been a really interesting time. It's not been without its challenges and it's not been without times where we've banged our heads against the brick wall. But we made it happen. We looked at the rules. We looked at what was permissible within our rules and, and where we could accept risk in order to, to create opportunity. And, and we did that. And, and that's some, been some really interesting things. And, and I think that, that speaks to the wider defence industry in, in so much as seeking opportunities, you know, creating avenues for, for future income generation, for, for doing things better and more efficiently through, through accepting risk. And I know this is something that, that you and I have talked about many times in the past, Mike. So I think that's been a really great example, the, the, the pandemic, of where we've adopted that kind of mindset to deliver great effect on behalf of the business and, and genuinely add value to the business and, and keep things going, keeping the handle turning, really, because it would have been really easy. And I know many of our peers, peer organisations within defence, have, have really struggled. You know, we never missed a day. We never missed a target. We never we never failed to deliver to our customers. And, and I, I think we're really proud of that fact. We kept people safe and we kept delivering uh, on all of our commitments. And I know we're probably one of a handful of organizations within our industry that, that were able to say that we did that. And I'm not I'm not speaking in general terms, but 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 I know there are many who didn't weather this anywhere near as well as we did. Well I'm just thinking the language you've just used there, <clears throat> draconian, rule driven, <laughs> risk averse. There you go. <laughs> it's like it's like buzzword bingo mind. Absolutely no, but the truth is that so often in the past you and I have had these conversations uh you know where we come up against that exact culture yeah, of yeah, yeah. being risk averse, rule driven, draconian, um, lack of trust. How can we trust people to be working if we can't see them? Let alone yeah. trust them to work on classified information yeah. if they're not yeah. within the the, the fences of our own making. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, you and I have a, a very similar attitude that 
to get security right, we really need to be starting with individual behaviours and we need to be managing and owning risk rather than trying to drive out risk. And, you know, draconian, whether it's leadership generally or leadership in security, the draconian approach just isn't fit for purpose for the modern business. I think one of the things that struck me um, throughout the, the, the pandemic, and that's um, with regard to how we do business as well as security, is that it brought out the best and the worst um, in many organisations. So we saw some really unpleasant behaviours towards employees um, using security as the sort of catch-all excuse for why they got treated actually quite badly. And I think it speaks to the overall culture of an organisation when a crisis happens, how they, how they treat their people um, and how they fight to either uh, enable or disable them um, to do their jobs. I think we saw an awful lot of really poor behaviour, but we saw some really good examples. And obviously you've just described um, at Lockheed how it's been handled really, really well. But you've also highlighted that that is, that is in part down to the current leadership and the predecessors may not have taken the same decisions. Yeah, and, and I think that that risk acceptance is not is not necessarily entirely at my level. You know, this is an, these are enterprise risks that we're talking about, and and I think it it, it speaks to our culture and, and and the leadership, the senior leadership within within the organisation that were that were prepared to embrace that risk. You know, with with the right communication, with the right understanding, and and you know, I, I saw my role very much as as articulating what that risk meant, what the potential impact of, of, of that risk to the business could could mean if it were to materialise or, or manifest itself and, and giving giving the senior decision makers within the organisation a full and honest appraisal of what this meant to us to allow them to make an informed and educated decision as to whether that was a risk that they were prepared to tolerate and, and accept. And, and I think with, with that, that really is, is, a, is a critical part of my role. And, and I think all all security professionals need to have that that understanding of how we articulate risk to senior decision makers. And it's something that we do exceptionally badly in, in many, many ways. You know, we, we talk about, oh, if, if you don't do this, it won't comply with with X, Y or Z policy or, and, you know, it, it might mean that that Russian paratroopers come climbing over the fence and, and all of those things are true but they're not it's not a language that the business necessarily understands and i think the the whole term of of, of, of well so what is something that resonates very 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 clearly with me and 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 my my senior leadership asked that question of me well, well okay paul we're not going to do this and that introduces some risk but but so what what does that mean to our business well it actually means that you know, it's going to cost you a million pounds a day. It's going to have this level of reputational impact, which will impact on future revenue generation. And, and you know, the morale of your staff will be affected, which may lead to uh, attrition, which will impact your business further down the line. OK, you're talking our language now. You know, I've, I've ticked the box with with our operations director because there's impacts from a, from an operational perspective. I've ticked the box with our HR, HR team because there's people impact. Our, 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 our comms guys get it because there's a reputational aspect to it. Our chief financial officer gets it because there's money involved, and and it needs to resonate with them. You know, if if all we do is is 
is quote policy and quote compliance risk then you, you're just banging your head against the brick wall you're not you're not talking the language that the business understands and i think that was key to to allowing our senior leaders to make informed decisions because they're quantitative qualitative assessments of those risks in language that they understood which i think historically they they would never have had and unfortunately that isn't that isn't what we see as the norm across the world of security is it i'd i'd agree mike yeah very much so we are more likely to see somebody engaging with a board and saying you've got to do this because that's what the rules say you've got to do that because that's what the policy says and you know the there is a an element within our world our profession that naturally come up at everything as a very risk averse approach minimizing risk rather than owning risk in pursuit of a successful outcome so i think and i think you're right about the communications thing and it's interesting that um you know, even within the professionalization arena, when we look at what they consider to be mandatory skills for a senior security profession professional, rather than um, what they class as the, the nice to haves, communication skills is actually considered to be a nice to have rather than a mandatory requirement. And yet, if you look at the um, information security workforce study going back as far as 2017, they were saying, look, we expect you to have technical skills. Technical skills is a given. What we need is for you to be able to communicate with us. So we want information security people with communication skills. So as far as the workforce study is concerned, that is informed by what employers are asking for. Employers are expecting, if you've applied for an information security job, I expect that you have got a lot of technical skills. So therefore, you know, whatever. But... Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's almost an employment hygiene yeah, that you're naturally it is on hygiene. Things, yeah. So it's not it's what we're in terms of what's actually going to push that um, relationship over the line. It's about the communication. It's not about the technical skills because you know, of course, you've just applied for this job, so why wouldn't you have them? But I think yeah, yeah. one of the things that I discovered, I did, um, I was speaking at a, a high security event um, recently. And during the course of my preparation for that speaking event, I was looking at um, some of the reasons why security professionals are saying that they're finding the um, threat landscape at the moment incredibly volatile and difficult to manage, you know, expanded attack services and, you know, trying to manage a lot of information that's now been pushed out to public cloud and things like that. There's a whole range of different things with, you know, the underlying rumbling skill shortage that um, that we always find ourselves talking about. One of the things that um, jumped out at me was a goodly proportion, I can't remember the exact number, but I think we're looking at around 25 or 30% of security professionals saying that they're finding, um, they're having to over-rotate to worry about compliance and it's taking them away from security. And I just thought, if that's the way we're doing compliance, then we're doing it all wrong because mm-hmm. the idea is supposed to be that the compliance actually supports and helps security it shouldn't be an, a massive over rotation that's actually preventing you from things so i think there's a definitely a conversation to be to be had around that um and you know all sorts of things sort of spilled out of that you know the massive stacks of um you know security stacks and stuff that's changing all the time there are so many different things that were feeding into this um a secure 
a security relationship with a business which is actually almost being hamstrung by its own culture and, and by this ever-evolving set of changing needs. Um, and if we're not using things like compliance to help us to do this, then are we reducing risk? So we may find ourselves having more conversations with our boards about risk and security. But if those conversations are not um, revealing then um, reductions in risk, then what are we doing with them? Why are they happening? Why are we doing these things? I think what we, what we so often see, though, is that compliance is seen as being achieved through the weight of the documentation rather than by the end result. It's an interesting one. I mean, Paul, if you think back to the, the old days of accreditation when we worked on accreditation projects, and accreditation was definitely judged by the weight of the RMADs, not necessarily by its <laughs> how, quality. How many pages? <laughs> <laughs> how many people you could club to death with it? It's really interesting that, that you kind of talk about that because I think, I think the shift that I've seen in defence over, over the last few years is very much a move away from, from compliance. And, and all of our regulatory authorities... A very, maybe a sweeping statement, but but they're less they're less concerned about you know you you must have this this fence of this height and and this wall of this thickness and this type of lock and this type of CCTV camera, and and it's far more about us as a, as an organisation as as an enterprise understanding our risk and coming up with with novel innovative ways to manage that risk and so long as we're able to understand that risk effectively and assign mitigations and controls and and do that in a demonstrable way that our, our accreditors can see how we're doing it can see the value that those things bring then they're generally happy with that i mean at the end of the day i think for for defense certainly you know the 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 world of defense the ministry of defense the uk uk plc needs businesses like us they are they are wholly invested in us being successful. Yeah. Because because you know the British Army, the Royal Air Force, and the Royal Navy could not operate without industry. You know we build the tanks, the planes, the bombs, the submarines that, that enable you know us to prosecute operations all over the world. And then put those things back together again once the uh, of course, once yeah. the military break them. When yeah. when when we break them or we're <laughs> So you know the, the the regulators that oversee our business are not they're not here to fail us. I think the people and, and this may be a slightly contentious one, the people who are here to fail us, I think are our own security folks in some regard. And that that compliance mindset is an is an easy way to do business. Yeah. Oh, it's not compliant. It's black and white. You know, to, to do things in a risk based way requires the the it requires a bit of abstract thought it requires someone to think about the risk it requires someone to think about the impact and likelihood of that risk and come up with innovative and and, and interesting you know ways to manage that risk you know to, to pick up a document and go well when we're not doing that is not really the, is not really what i would expect of my team here and and it i think it's just a cop out i think it's just an easy way to do security because it doesn't require us to think about it. And I think I think in so very many ways, you know, our business needs us to do it like this in, in an innovative way. Our, our regulators are quite happy for us to do that. I think the problem that we have right now is a bunch of security folks sat in the middle who who want to help the business. I'm sure they're probably invested in that, but but they don't know how to do it. 
They don't know how to come up with a risk-based approach. So they default back to what they used to know, which is which is a compliance regime of, of oh, your fence isn't tall enough and your wall isn't thick enough and we need some more guards. And that just doesn't really float it anymore. I think it, it turns business off. It, it fails to capitalize upon the opportunities that our regulatory authorities are giving to us. And we're not serving our businesses properly if we approach it in that way. So, you know, that might be a slightly contentious view, but I think there are some out there who 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 are that old school, who are, you know, leopard can't change its spots kind of attitude of they've been brought up with very much a compliance based approach to security, a rule driven approach to security. And, and and they're struggling now to evolve into a world where where that is no longer an affordable or acceptable way to do business. So I don't know. It's like, it's like comfort blanket, isn't it? It's yeah. the comfort blanket. It of is. Rules. It is, Mike. Absolutely. And, and if Absolutely. you've got a rule book, then you can you can rule the business. You know, you can keep yeah. the business compliant by following yeah. the rules. But yeah. the reality yeah. is that in the modern world, we need to be working to a guiding set of principles. But we also yeah. need to allow teams to use their discretion and their professional judgment to decide yeah. how they yeah. get yeah. to a successful outcome yeah. by following yeah. those guiding principles. Yeah. And I think you're right, there is a, still a community out there. They like the black and whiteness of it. Yeah. They like the rules. They like to have compliance. And compliance yeah. is driven by yeah. policy. And policy yeah. has to be black and white. Because if but it's not black and white, yeah, that's right. But you see, if policy isn't black and white, how can you yeah. tell when people have done the wrong thing? Yeah. Rather than yeah. developing that you know, individual responsibility for behaviours yeah. and attitudes. And it comes back to what Paul was saying there. Certain, you can give people some, you know, technologies, VPNs, secure laptops, but once you send them out of a secure space and you allow them to work from home, you are largely relying on their own individual behaviours yeah. to continue to look after things properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, not only do we need them to be good communicators, we also need them to be creative and adaptable. Um, and these are not traditional skill sets that have been They're not traditional skill sets, no. no. I mean, a lot of people who end up in, in security, um, not all, but a lot of people who end up in security come up through the traditional IT route. Mm -hmm. And IT as a profession generally tends to attract people who are um, fairly introvert, um, who like facts, who like order, uh, and from order comes control. Mm -hmm. And so you end up then with the people who have come from that background rising up, dare I say it, rising up into the security world, and they bring that, that native safety net that is their natural personality with them. Yeah. And that doesn't... That doesn't necessarily equate to intuitive. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't necessarily equate to being able to make a leap of logic mm -hmm. and be able to see the big picture. Mm -hmm. And it also often, because of their innate um, introvertness of them, doesn't translate into being natural communicators or trainers. Mm -hmm. And yet we're asking them to do all of those things. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think the other, the other part of it, to my mind is you know a lot of guys and i and i, I include myself in this in this diet in this uh, kind of demographic for good or for ill but they're ex-military or they're ex-cops both both of which are organizations that by their very definition are very regimented 
very, very, no, I wouldn't say restrictive, but, you know, there is a way to do it in the military. And, and that's kind of it. We, we encourage clearly people to be to be adaptable and flexible, but it's a very regimented organization. And, and from a policing perspective, the law is the law is the law. And it is it is black and white because that's that's necessary, you know, points to prove and, and the legal framework that supports the judicial system, the legal system, I think engenders that kind of mentality in certain people. And, and I think you've got you've got a real mix of those kind of three groups of people in this world who for various reasons because of their backgrounds are are tarred with that bit of a brush really i suppose which is which is maybe um maybe something that, that we need to give thought to and you know th- there'll be those who will break out of that mold there'll be those who will forge their own path and 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 go on and be successful and, and support their businesses there'll be others who who sadly probably won't and and they'll be the ones who maybe are the dinosaurs that we that we're kind of focusing this at a little bit, I guess, today from a slightly critical point of view, perhaps. It's probably for those same reasons that I wasn't considered to be a good soldier. (laughs) So we need a little bit of diversity. It's a different kind of diversity, but we need diversity in security as well because the diversity of thinking, it sounds like, is is the thing that is lacking and preventing from security joining joining the business rather than acting upon it there, there is being a, there, seen as a separate yeah entity. there is there is a core a, a core of group think and part of that group think is and this is the way we've always done security and we do mm. security through compliance and by having a set of rules that mm-hmm. everybody will slavishly follow yeah. um, and we need to break that group think mm-hmm. but also as we've discussed um many a time in the past as a profession it is still very much pale, male, and stale. Mm-hmm. And diversity has to come from having different backgrounds, um, allowing a route into security from different professions that are not the traditional routes into security. Mm-hmm. It has to come through things like um, groups like the women in security groups and things like that, neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. And it comes from people like us, people like Paul and myself and, and yourself, Ellie, from being continuously there um, at the forefront of saying, just because we've always done it this way, doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way to do it now mm-hmm. or for the future. And the threat is becoming increasingly agile mm-hmm. and adaptive. And we have to become agile and flexible and adaptive mm-hmm. if we're going to be successful. So I think maybe, you know, if we're looking at if we're looking at businesses and looking at the people that we that are that are we're trying to encourage them to be part of the um, security um, resilience of its business. We need to be looking at our business as a whole and identifying people who can be champions for us in different areas of the business. Because if we we can't suddenly just change out all the people that we have working in security, that wouldn't be to anybody. Well, apart but, from the fact that we just don't have enough of them at the moment, there anyway. Aren't enough anyway, yeah. But identifying people, like you know, like myself, who maybe are working, mm-hmm. who have started off working in other areas of the business, but have um, some creative thought around security, have an interest in security, um, you know, read about it or happy to talk about it, and maybe have some of those missing skills that could be co-opted into helping either spread messaging or becoming, you know, a black belt in a particular department or you know, becoming security champions within an organisation, but they're not necessarily security people. 
I think I think I'll I'll throw one into this because this is something that I know you guys have done in the past, and I, and I think it's a good a good and great model for businesses to give some thought to is about is like early careers, and we we as a business we we adopt a tremendous amount of effort in in early careers, you know, particularly around things like STEM, science, technology, engineering, maths, you know, growth areas, and we bring in lots of young people into the organisation to learn about what business does. In, in those particular, those key areas, we bring in, you know, interns and graduates in HR, in finance, in many of our functional areas. Never once have we had anyone in an early careers position in security. And I know this is something that you guys have done. And, and I really like that because, you know, I think, I think, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a little bit, biased in this regard but i don't think there are many people sat in in schools and universities today who think do you know what when i grow up i really want to work in security you know i want to be a pop star or an astronaut or a formula one race car driver but i don't want to work in security and i think i think a lot of times people people fall into this as a second career or a third career and and is that because you know it's just that kind of industry is it because there are no opportunities to see what this is an early point in their lives and and we don't we don't do ourselves any favors by by selling this industry i think it's the latter i think it's the latter paul um as you know i've for many years been talking about why we don't have an effective route into the schools you know yeah. i mean yep. we i was very lucky some years back to be able to do some work as part of the stem ambassador scheme to go into to schools and for a while we were doing things like a, a security takeover day uh-huh. um and so all of the core subjects but were taught with from a security background and so you know history we talk about the trojan horse and then we bring that up to date in terms of malware um yep. or you know maths and we would talk about cryptography and it was about trying to introduce security as being a staple part of the education the curriculum but then beyond that, where do they go next? Because the next the next level of education, by and large, is for people of our age group to go off and do a master's degree. And yeah, there's there's yeah. no education route. If you if you're in, if you want to be an engineer, you you go you get your A levels, you go to yeah. university, you'll yeah. study engineering. On your first day of university, you're not sat down and asked what type of engineer do you want to be you learn all of the facets of engineering yep. and you might go on to do electrical engineering or mechanical engineering or structural engineering, mm-hmm. but you have to learn to be an engineer first and foremost. Yeah. And yet we're taking, even right now, we're, we're taking kids at the age of 16 and saying, you're good at maths, you're good at coding, you're going to be a pen tester. And that's the only part of security they'll ever touch. Yeah. 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 Why don't we have an education package that 16 through to early 20s um individuals can learn about risk because very few people in security actually have any risk qualifications let alone experience you can learn about physical security people security it security cyber you can learn about communications you can learn about business continuity and resilience you can learn about and suddenly we've got a curriculum that says at the end of that you are well-rounded individual And now you can start to think about your specialism and you can go on and specialize in a particular area. And that might be that they go on to be specialists in security education or 
or cyber or technical or pen testing or whatever, that's okay. But, you know, going going on your first day of medical college and being told you're going to be a, a, a neurosurgeon, it, it, they they would laugh you out the room if you try to say that's the way to educate people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we we're we're really missing a trick there because I mean there's some incredibly talented and capable young people out there, and 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 we we're fortunate to have you know my team and I. Uh, opportunities within our early careers development programs that that we do something similar to what you just talked about there Mike and I wouldn't say it's as formal or as structured as what you just explained but you know we we try and embed a security mindset in into everyone they're coming here to be an engineer that's that's their passion in life but you know everyone needs to have a level of understanding and an appreciation and and I think if we can get that into the non-security professionals why aren't we doing that for people who who maybe have an aptitude for for these kind of skills or these kind of areas and and i just think you know we we are really missing out on on some of these really capable people who who could be doing some great work within within these fields you know it it, it just it frustrates me that that we we end up with people who you know were never really passionate about this they just kind of wandered through life and, and found themselves in these in these kind of jobs when when we could and should be nurturing this kind of a mindset because when, when you've got someone as a second or third career i'm not saying this is a bad thing but they've got some baggage they've got some they've got some you know views of life from their previous uh, previous employment previous careers and and that can be really good it can be really great but it can be a it can be a detriment to their future success, and 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 I'm not suggesting that every single person who works in security should be, you know, brought up through through a system of of different positions. But I think it would add a really interesting dynamic to the industry going forward. People who you could have 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 kind of. And I, and I hate to use this word, but, but groomed and developed over a period of time to be that all-rounded security professional who understands risk, who can communicate effectively, who can understand business and understand how security interacts with other functions within an organization and at an enterprise level. And, and that surely has got to be the, the, way, the way that we need to start thinking. You know, t- tempered and balanced out with with experienced folks from other walks of life. But at the minute, I think it's very skewed in one particular area rather than that that broader, more diverse. But you know, we've been talking about oh, it must be coming on for ten years now as a, as a profession about the skills deficit. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I certainly you know I think well. I'm not getting any younger. You know, I'm I'm heading for mid fifties. The the, the retire, retirement uh, finish line is in sight for me now. Yeah. Where yeah. are the replacements for you and I coming from from the mm-hmm. future? And I, yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Paul. Is that we must be encouraging from all walks of life through all facets of education, um, newer, younger, more diverse people into this profession for it to be a profession of the future. And that's got to be combined with having a a, a proper holistic education package that doesn't just rely on somebody in their mid-30s leaving the military or the police with some security background, and now you're a security professional but actually enables you to go and speak to a 14-year-old at a careers day and say, look, this is a career path. This is a career route. 
And, you know, we can point to people like you. We can point to people like Chris. We can point you know, so many people who have come through our doors over the years who have gone on to be heads of, of various organizations because in being able to do that we can say this isn't just a job it's a career absolutely absolutely and, and i think that's that's maybe you know where where we fall a little bit flat that the, there isn't there isn't that obvious kind of trajectory and and those opportunities aren't aren't as clearly articulated i think there's a lot of and that kind of old boy network that still exists, you know, I'll, I'll hire that guy because he's an ex-cop or I'll hire that guy because he was the same cat badge as me in the military. And, and I think there's a lot of nepotism and, and, and there's still that, that it will probably die out over time, I dare say, but I think it still permeates a lot of, a lot of security to, to one extent or another. And again, for good or for ill, I think in some regard, it, it just, it just limits us and stifles us and we're not capitalizing upon some of those opportunities and i think it it might take it might take people like me and and my contemporaries and my peers and i guess it kind of brings us back to what we talked about earlier to take a risk to take a risk on someone who isn't the same as them to take a risk on someone who isn't pale <laughs> white and stale or whatever whatever you said earlier mike um and who isn't who isn't an ex chief inspector wing commander colonel in in whatever whatever walk of life i know and i'm familiar with and i'm comfortable with and i think it requires that person and, and myself included to be a little bit more open to risk because yeah it might it might not work out when we bring that that young young fellow lad into the organization but you know what it might and it might work really well and the opportunities that, that that individual brings, the different perspective that that individual brings might be exactly what we're looking for. And, and I think it's it's that risk and opportunity, isn't it, that, that we've kind of talked about a lot today. And, and I think it is for those people to, to take a chance and, and to give that person an opportunity where, where otherwise, you know, our predecessors may not have done. And, and, and to maybe be a little bit more open uh, to, to some of those those potential individuals who bring a different perspective than, than we historically have done in the past. Definitely. There will always be risk and uncertainty, mm-hmm. but risk and uncertainty shouldn't hold us back from doing the right thing, whether yeah. that is for our individual businesses, for the profession as a whole, or for the betterment of society. And yeah. I think, you know, we've we've talked on this podcast many, many times over the years now, it's about bringing risk and business together mm-hmm. and risk being an enabler for business mm-hmm. rather than a blocker for business. Mm-hmm. And as Paul's just said there, maybe we all need to take a little step back, open ourselves up to taking a risk and thinking about how risk can make things better, yeah. not just safer. Because imagine what you might be able to achieve mm-hmm. if you just take a little bit of risk. Absolutely. So this has been the Advent IM podcast, Risk and Business. If you're young and not pale, male and stale, and you've been listening to this, and you think you might want to have a even just a day in the life of to find out what security is all about, then reach out. You can contact us through all our social media groups. And I'm sure, Paul, if we were to bring you along some sparkling young fellow me lad, or girl, or girl, um, Indeed, I'm sure sorry, you'd yes, be more yes. than happy to show them the ropes. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so until next time, take care, stay safe, and take a risk.